0: We're coming at last back to Romans after about six weeks, focusing on Christmas and the Advent season. And if you could turn to Romans 14, in a bit we'll be starting in verse 1. Some of you might know that there actually are churches that sound and look like what you see up there on the screens. And. Um, If you think about it, and I've been kind of thinking about it this week, it's like totally amazing that ours doesn't look like that. Uh, Given what a diverse uh, body we've got, I mean, we've got people from all walks of life, people who are richer, really richer, people that are poorer, uh, really poor, poorer. Uh, Socioeconomic differences, which are the hardest to bridge in any group, and even in the church, we come from all sorts of denominational backgrounds. As some of you know, from you know, all the way from low, low church Baptist to high church. Episcopalians, from um, charismatics to non charismatics, and from those who feel pretty strongly in both camps. I mean, skiers and snowboarders even come here and they get along. I mean, it's like totally awesome. They come in dressed up to go, and um, it's one of the many things that attracted us to Dillon Community Church there because there can be, and indeed there is, such great strength in diversity. It's one thing that used to make America great. But of course, today we're divided, sundered into all sorts of special interest groups. Uh, we devour one another in politics. Comedy is gone. Where did that go? We, have, uh, we need a little more civility, I think, a little more charity in our public discourse. And if it can't start in the church, where can it start? And it can happen even in the church. In fact, we're going to see that James says you bite and devour one another. And then he goes on to say why. But for the most part, we're not seeing that here at Dillon Community Church. And so today is going to be basically a word to the wise that we don't take for granted what we've got, because that really can result if we do. Maybe some of you have experienced it and you know how. Critically important it is that we follow our motto of the church. I love it. It comes from the Reformation. It goes in, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, what? Charity. In all things, charity. Which trumps just about every other priority. If you remember, uh, the last two chapters before we got to chapter 14, which which again we'll start today, Romans 12 and 13, are all about the qualities of true Christianity. The qualities of true Christianity. For 11 chapters, chapter 1 to 11, Paul outlines really the words of the gospel. And then starting in chapter 13, he gets into what you might call the music of the gospel. The qualities of true Christianity that make our faith real. And then at the end of chapter 13, if you remember, we saw six weeks ago or so that it was all summed up in love. He who loves his neighbor, Paul says, has fulfilled all these qualities, has fulfilled the law. And then, starting today in chapter 14, for the next one and a half chapters, chapters 14 on into 15, he focuses on really the supreme quality of true Christianity by which they'll know we are Christians by our love. And I don't think it's coincidental that we're coming to one of the main passages on love in the New Testament during our year of the caring community. And we've seen that as well in chapter 12 and 13. They'll know we are Christians by our love which uh, we need to remember, not just as a church, but in politics, as a special interest group, as uh, people that are maybe more conservative, that we talk a lot about family values, but we got to remember, as someone said, that hatred is not a family value. No, we love our enemies. Christ died for them. True story. You may have heard it. It comes from a, a man that I know. He teaches at Bethel Seminary, he and our friends. He wrote this about 20 years ago. He said as a young staff pastor in Arizona, he said he was amazed and he was like totally indignant when a colleague of his, a pastoral friend of his, uh, told him about the carpeting in his office. He, uh, John said, I knew church life was tough, but I didn't know it was that tough. This friend of his was the founding pastor of this church. He had built it from, you know, just a small group in his home, up to 300 people or so in just about seven years. And he and his wife had poured their lives into this congregation. And they were finally building their building that they were going to move into. And his friend said he only had one request uh, as this whole building went up, and that is that in his carpet, he'd have red carpet. In his office, he'd have red carpet. Well, the trustees got together, they voted, and guess what they put in his office? green shag. This is a true story. And uh, John said, I told him, how can you put up with that? He said, John said, the attitude of those trustees toward this unselfish servant made me furious. John said to this guy, I would insist on what I'm going to have in my office. Dave's response was one I've never forgotten a word of advice that has been a wise guy throughout my 17 years of ministry. He said this, John, you have to determine what's worth going to the wall for. We're going to see all this applies not to, to the church, but to our homes, to our marriages, our relationship with our kids, to our workaday world. You've got to determine what's worth going to the wall for. And then he concludes, not every issue is worth a fight. Which is exactly what Chuck Swindoll said. I love this. He said, The older I get, the fewer things I would fight for, but those things I would die for. Charity. I thought what we'd first do is take kind of a quick bird's eye view of chapter 14, first half of chapter 15, to see that really love is the main themes of these chapters. It's kind of like the golden thread that pulls all these verses together. And it's a beautiful thing we're going to see. Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 14 by saying that we need to accept one who is weak in the faith, whose opinions differ from our own, which, of course, is a good part of love. And then in chapter 15, verse 14, he sums up those 14 verses by saying that, uh, by, by, by saying that so far he's, he's telling us to walk according to love. And then in chapter 15, verse 2, he sums it up again. Let us each please his neighbor for his good to build him or her up. That's love. We're to love one another. And then at the very end of this one and a half chapter section, verse 7 of chapter 15, he concludes it all by saying, therefore, accept one another just as Christ has accepted us. And we're going to see that that's where he talks about accepting one another in our worship, living joyfully with diversity unity and diversity undergirded by charity and just how does that happen well paul focuses um begins his focus on love as the most important quality of true christianity by pointing out he starts by pointing out the main obstacles to love He starts by focusing on it kind of negatively, or you might say uh, uh, diagnostically, on why uh, so often Christians don't love one another as they ought to, on what really we're going to see sabotages our love. And the first and foremost thing that does that is what he calls judging. Judging one another. Holding your brother in contempt because of your heartfelt convictions. Again, it all starts in chapter 14, verse 1. Where he says, now accept one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has accepted him. And then we'll conclude, who are you to judge the servant of another? Just what does this mean? Well, let's take it apart verse by verse. Now, accept one who is weak in the faith, again, verse 1, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. The New International Version <coughs> excuse me, puts it this way, accept him who is weak in the faith without passing judgment on disputable matters on disputable matters. And again, the first thing that comes to Paul's mind when he's thinking about the challenge of maintaining our love is our tendency sometimes to make dogmatic judgments against one another in disputable matters in areas where the Scripture may not be quite as clear as you think it is. And we're going to see in areas where the Scripture is clear, we need to be even more careful because those convictions can far more easily turn into contempt. They can far more turn into contempt. I got a little bit heated at the last service, so I'm struggling with my voice. Maybe that'll force me to tone it down. So you'll probably be glad for that. But what issue was he talking about? What was the controversy back then? Well, starting in verse 2, One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Now, that might not sound like too big a deal to you, but in those days, I'm telling you, that was the hot topic in the early church. Back then, there were two issues having to do with eating that was really tearing some of the churches apart. The first focused on Jewish dietary laws. Of course, there are many commands in the Old Testament as to what we can eat or what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. And so many Jewish Christians felt that you still had to be kosher. They couldn't in good conscience eat like, you know, pork or anything else that was prohibited in the Old Testament. And they didn't feel anyone else should either. These weren't just suggestions in their opinion. These were commandments. And they could prove it from the Bible, or so they thought. Paul says that these people were weak in faith because Christ had taught that all foods, if you remember, are now clean. But it seems that their religious tradition, which is an issue in the church down through the centuries, their religious tradition hindered their ability really to hear Christ's teaching. So they kind of explained it away. You might say they had an immature conscience. Or really, I guess it was kind of an out-of-date conscience. The Gentile Christians, on the other hand, could eat pork without it going against their conscience. And so, in that area anyway, they had a stronger faith. They had better understanding. And believe me, they knew it. This controversy was dividing the church. Gentile Christians uh, accused the Jews of being too legalistic about food. And the Jews, on the other hand, accused the Gentiles of taking way too much license when it came to what you ate. And on top of that, unfortunately, there was another dietary issue that was also dividing them. It had to do with meat, as some of you probably know, meat sacrificed to idols. Meat that went from uh, pagan temples offered to the idols to the grocery stores, you might say, to the tables of Christians. And a lot of people really took offense at that. In this case, it wasn't the Jews that were immature. It was the Gentiles uh, that were immature in their understanding. Those who were converted out of pagan idolatry, those Gentiles, uh, which was really a, a carnal kind of worship, almost a demonized kind of worship, they simply could not in good conscience eat such meat because they thought it was defiled. And they didn't feel anyone else should either. And they could marshal, you know, some pretty good arguments in uh, their case. Like you're supporting the pagan temple with your money when you're buying their meat. Just like we use such arguments today when it comes to certain boycotts of what you should or shouldn't buy, given where it came from. Some people in good conscience can't buy certain things because of where it came from. Paul's saying it's no big deal. That's kind of hard for some to swallow. He said, uh, you should follow your conscience, but not impose it on others. And they had the Bible on their side, or so they thought they did. Yet still Paul called it a gray area that they shouldn't divide over. Even though the scripture was clear that all foods were clean, even though you know, one camp had the Bible on their side, Paul said, accept them. And don't you dare pass a judgment on their opinion. So we have then their disputes over matters of conviction, which had to do, as it says in verse 2 again, with whether they ate or didn't eat certain foods. So what are our disputes? Well, I thought it might be smart today to start kind of, you know, at a safe distance and warm ourselves up to it uh, with how Christians say in our grandparents' day would devise. Shall we start there? A few decades ago, there were some God-fearing, Bible-believing believers, brothers and sisters uh, in Christ, who were totally opposed to... And just hold that thought. Thank you, Julie. Way to go. They were totally opposed to, and you're not, you might not believe this, but it was true as Dividing Church of listening to the radio. Now, why would you think that they would feel that's an unbiblical thing to do? Well, the Bible is clear, even to Christian radio, because the Bible says Satan is the prince of the power of the air, right? Isn't that, I mean, take the Bible literally now. Don't explain it away. Don't do that on me. So anything, it's a corollary, and this is a direct application of that clear teaching. Anything that travels through the air has been defiled by Satan. Kind of like meat sacrificed to idols that goes through the temple. Back in another day, back in the Victorian era in England... There were two very famous preachers, one whose name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Probably most of you remember him. The other was a guy named Theodore Parker, one of my favorite preachers. And early in their ministries, they would fellowship together. They even exchanged pulpits sometimes. They were good friends. But then they had a disagreement, which means just because you might be mature or godly doesn't mean you're above this. They had a disagreement, and it was so strong that it became public, and then the newspapers picked it up. Spurgeon, apparently, accused Parker of being unspiritual because he liked to go to the theater. That was an issue that was dividing Christians back then. Spurgeon, on the other hand, liked to, of all things, smoke cigars. Can you imagine? Charles Haddon Spurgeon. A practice that many Christians condemned, including Joseph Parker. And that disagreement ended up like totally sabotaging their relationship together and, of course, their witness before the watching world. Which only goes again to show that any of us, no matter how mature or spiritual we may be, can fall into this trap. Indeed, sometimes the more spiritual, those who have been Christians the longest can be the most judgmental. Just like the Pharisees. Just because you're mature doesn't mean you're above it. In fact, in some ways, falling into this kind of thing is easier because it makes you think you're qualified to be judgmental. Because you know so much. And it's so easy for us to get so self-righteously indignant when those who are less mature just don't see it that way, don't agree with us. It's like Christ said to the Pharisees, you strain the gnat, but you swallow the camel. It's happening to this day. You hold to the net, you know, of some precious conviction, but swallow the camel of some serious judgmentalism. Ever done that? I think I may have bordered on that sometimes. Even done it. By the way, Spurgeon continued to smoke cigars until the day he saw this billboard near his church advertising a certain brand of tobacco, and there, in large letters above. His picture, it said, the brand Spurgeon smokes. And she was appalled. And so, you know, he stopped smoking. His, his conscience was provoked. That was a God thing. But God doesn't provoke every conscience in that way. When it comes to whatever, smoking cigars or what. So, you know, still keeping it at a safe distance before we get into what kind of sometimes might divide us. Let's. Uh, how do other people, this time in our own day, bringing it back a little closer to the present day, how do other people in our own day tend to divide over non-essentials? I heard a church some time ago that got into an argument of whether they should use a Christmas tree in their Christmas program. Some thought the tree was fine. Others had proof positive that it was a pagan practice. Went through the temple, through the air. This, it came through a pagan tradition. So it's wrong. One day, apparently, one group would go in and drag it out. The next day, another group would go in and drag it back in. And they literally got into fist fights over this, and then in court. And of course, the whole thing played out for all that it was worth in the media. Kind of reminds me of what Cromwell said Oliver Cromwell, remember him way back when, in the 17th century? The, um, he said, to the Scottish Presbyterians of his day, they were very rigid, they were very right, they were very godly, a lot of them were, um, they, uh, who they thought were so mature and wise. But he said, at one point in some conflict, he said, I beseech you by the bowels of Christ, think it possible that you might be mistaken. Has anyone ever had to say that to you? <laughs> like peter marshall prayed he was a chaplain of the senate way back when and uh uh, and i love this he said he he, one of his daily prayers was this lord where we are wrong make us willing to change and where we are right make us easy to live with (laughs) is your husband kind of hard to live with sometime or is you as a wife are you hard to live with because you're so convinced that he's wrong or whatever this kind of thing applies to all our relationships, being a caring community at home, at church, or wherever. So. Let's get the rubber on the road a little bit more. What does this look like? What does it look like when you're easy to live with, when you accept one who is uh, weak in the faith? How do we apply this? Well, even if you are right and they are wrong, and even if you can prove it in the Bible, and even if you think you have the whole of church history on your side, still, maybe give them some time. Give them some space. Leave room for maybe God to convict, convict them after all, how long did it take you how long did it take you to come to that conviction? Did someone snap their fingers and there you were? Probably not. No, No one can work you know on everything there is to work on in the Christian life and on becoming more mature at the same time, right? It's like, duh, yeah, okay, well, no one can know everything they need to know about Christianity, have all the convictions that they should have all at once. So who are you with your husband or wife or kid or here at church with some issue? Who are you to presume that this is what God wants them to work on right now? That's playing God. So you don't just, you know, write them off or go off in a huff just because they don't see the light in this particular area that's so important to you. Maybe God's working on them in another area right now. In fact, if they're believers, he is. And maybe they're doing quite well there and they're changing in the way that he wants them, them to change there. And maybe in that area, you're not doing quite so well. If we only knew how far people have come, we might be, you know, proud of them, not contemptuous for where they are. Yes, we're called to speak the truth in love. We're called to sharpen one another. And in a culture that's slouching toward Gomorrah, doctrinally and all sorts of moral areas, we've got to stand for the truth. That's why maybe we fight so hard and get so ugly sometimes because so much is at stake here. None of this means that we should just live and let live, you know, which means live and let die. There's the, an iron sharpening iron element to our relationships. But on the other hand, there is a time to speak, as Solomon says, and there is a time to be silent. A lot of wisdom needs to go into this. There is a time to, to plant the seed. This is the image my dad used to use when you confront someone just plant the seed and then get out of there, right? Let God take over. There's a time to plant the seed by telling them what you think, what you believe. But equally, there is a time pretty quickly sometimes to back off and say like my dad did when you can expect a reaction. If it's true, of course, we all react. We'll back off and say, well, I could be wrong, but just pray about it and I'll be praying too. There's a time to back off and maybe water that seed with some prayer. Maybe shower that seed with some love. Those are conditions in which the seed will blossom and bear fruit. There is a time and there is a way. Proverbs 15:2. I love this one. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable doesn't just throw your pearl of wisdom at their foreheads so it'll lodge there, right? The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. Praise fervently, how should I say this? When should I say this? Should I say this? How you say it is just as important as what you say. That's what James teaches so clearly in the parallel passage to Romans 14, James chapter 3. He talks about He said, you bite and devour one another. Those are the words that he uses. And he too says it's because you judge one another. It's because you speak the truth in a way that's totally from the pit of hell. He says, "Who?" And then he goes on to say, "Who is wise and understanding among you? That is, who thinks that he has something that should be said in one issue or another. <clears throat> who is wise and understanding among you?" James 3:13. "By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom." It's just as much about your works as your word. That is, it's just as much about how you come across as whether you're right or wrong. That's James' teaching. Let him show by his good conduct uh, his works in the meekness of wisdom. And then he goes on to say, when that is not there, there is disorder and every evil thing that pours itself out through truth that is right in what it says, but wrong in the way it says it. That, he says, can come from the pit of hell, and it can result in that. Just like the Pharisees, who are so often so right, but so wrong. And then James concludes this way. It's a beautiful uh, couple of verses. He says, the wisdom from above, that is, uh, to be right in the right way, The wisdom that comes from heaven, you've got to be first pure. That is, check out that log that might be in your eye that might be causing you to overreact to this thing. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And then he uses the seed image that my dad used to use all the time. He said, the seed whose fruit is righteousness, that is the seed of truth that you're trying to plant in their heart, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is, uh, uh, and not disorder and every evil thing is what? Sown in peace by those who make peace. Isn't that beautiful? Because the truly mature, those whose wisdom comes from above, know that especially in a country full of uh, you and likes of you and me, full of consumers who are used to getting their way, you know, in the company of believers who holds a high view of morality, as we should, especially in a church of such diversity like we are, disputes of convictions can easily turn into contemptuous division. Word to the wise. So, what about us? What do we tend, where do we talk, tend to uh, draw lines in the sand? Well, if you look back at the clock, why don't you all look back there? It says 11.01, right? So I'm one minute over, which means we can pull back and talk about that next week. Where do we tend to divide? <laughs> Truth be told, I should say this. I used to smoke a pipe at one time. And... Uh, I don't now. I don't know. I may get back into it or not. And if I do, I'll be glad there's not a billboard in Summit County because I do not want to worry about what happened to me that happened to Spurgeon. But uh, uh, I would hope that you would help me to hold that conviction with compassion, or that you would. So, as Paul said at the beginning of all this, bottom line, what's fueling it all is what makes possible a caring community, a caring family, A caring marriage, caring fathers, mothers, and children, and that is he who loves his brother or sister has fulfilled the law. Father, we want to thank you that there is so much that unites us in Christ, that by comparison to what unites us in Christ, what divides us is trivial, not unimportant, but by comparison, it's trivial. And so, Father, I pray that we would hold high this wonderful value that you've given us to a church in all our diversity, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.